the perception and understanding of yoga in India is very different to what has gone and spread outside of India as yoga. There needs to be respect to this grand narrative of yoga and we should be careful not to dumb it down. Yes, we can participate in it, we can practice in, in it in parts, but we should not forget that it is a whole. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, here to illuminate your practice as we discover what it means to walk the yogi's path. Together with wise friends and awakening teachers, we uncover the answers to our greatest questions. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. Welcome back to the show, Curious Yogis. I'm coming to you from my happy Himalayan home in northern India and so delighted to share this episode with you for a couple reasons. Firstly, because it's actually the 50th episode today. That is 50 conversations that have totally inspired and illuminated my own sadhana. And I really hope that they've done the same for you. So thanks for being here. Thanks for listening, for all the reviews. And with that, I'm excited to introduce you to this week's guest once again on the show, the ever-fresh and brilliant Prasad Regnakar, humble and humorous with a way of connecting the listener to the underlying essence of what yoga really is with such clarity. Prasad is a yoga educator based in Mumbai who teaches yoga as a science of mind, body, life transformation, and he's done so for nearly 30 years all across the world. For Prasad, yoga is more than a pursuit of poses. It is a process of breaking free from our fundamental mind-body limitations to realize who we truly are. Mm, I love that. With this aim, he guides people to transform themselves and inspire others. Prasad says that he has nothing new to offer in terms of yoga. All that he offers is that which has been handed down to him by his parents, teachers, and guru. But I beg to differ. You'll notice today how he amazingly expounds all my questions with totally amazing analogies and offers us inquiries from which we can all contemplate and learn. Today I ask him how we can practice yoga while respecting the roots, the origins, and the culture from which it arises. Today he gives us a broader context to consider when arriving at the practices and study of yoga as well as the utmost importance of studentship. I left this conversation with my heart wide open for the yoga we so thoroughly discussed, the yoga which can never be extracted in part from the whole magnificent self that we all aspire to know and reside in. Whether you're a student, a teacher, or simply curious about what yoga really is, there is something here for you. So without further ado, Here's my illuminating conversation with Prasad. So really great to see you again, though. Thank you for having me again. Been more than one year and actually um, having you on the podcast last season was one of the most listened to episodes ever. So I was I saw how attracted listeners are to what you have to share. And me also, I got so lit up from our last conversation that I'm so delighted to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's just so um, wonderful to get, like you were just saying before about people coming to India and kind of, you know, we break down, we get inspired, and then we can kind of arrive at these teachings. And that's what I love to have these conversations for because it does illuminate where there's stuckness where there's mind and then Mm -hmm. how these teachings and practices can really 
help the practitioner, guide the practitioner to that sense of freedom, which I think yeah. we're both very attracted to. Yeah, yeah. So once again, thank you for having me. Our conversations always go deeper into not just the typical view of yoga, but also the deeper cultural, social view of yoga. Yeah, and I think that's like uh, what I had mentioned in the email that I, I've i been really contemplating within my own practice, within my own teaching, these, like you said, the deeper elements of yoga that one just naturally starts to consider once we start to really go into the depth of yoga, especially for me as someone coming from a Western culture where yoga maybe is slightly different than its roots and its origins. So it might seem maybe, you know, for you a bit basic, but I know that the the listeners are coming from all over the world and yeah. that if we can get into a little bit of just the nuanced roots of yoga, which I know it's probably could be a whole episode in itself, but mm, if you can just yeah. have share with us some of those touch points that we can we can consider practicing yoga today and where it came from and what what our responsibility is yeah so i consider yoga as a cultural capital of south asia and i'm purposely saying it as cultural capital because um it's more than clear uh, we are research that yoga originated in India, though there are uh, many theories that yoga came from somewhere else and this and that. But these, those are very, um, very shallow theories with some basal agendas. But it's more than enough evidence over last 3000 years at least that yoga emerged as a philosophy, as a practice as a lifestyle in this particular region of the world. And this is why I call it cultural capital, because you can, if you, if you take the whole spiritual culture of India, you can just file it under one single term, that is yoga. There are spiritual cultures in different other parts of the world, which have become religions. You know, there's the Taoistic culture, there is this uh, Abrahamic culture, then there are uh, uh, spiritual traditions of uh, Hopi Indians and the indigenous tribes of Australia. So every region has their own spiritual tradition, spiritual culture, and Yoga can be used as an umbrella term to connote the spiritual culture and the spiritual capital of India. And if something becomes a cultural um, capital, then of course it becomes, it needs to be treated with responsibility because culture doesn't develop overnight. Culture grows over uh, years, hundreds of years, thousands of years at times. So I see culture like coral reef, you know, like how we, how a coral reef builds over thousands and millions of years, actually. Culture also develops over a period of time. And that needs to be conserved. Now, what happens is uh, when aspects of culture are taken or literally plucked out of the cultural ecosystem and then they are taken away, uh, number one, they are reduced. But when they go to another place, they are treated as a whole and not as a part. And this is what has happened with yoga. Yoga is a complete uh, spiritual knowledge system out of which just the physicality 
uh, the physical aspects were plucked out and taken for whatever reason. I'm not saying it is bad or good, but that's how cultures develop and our cultures inspire each other. Uh, so, as you mentioned, the general popular view of yoga in the West is that of the physicality. Physical yoga, what we do something with the body is yoga. While if you look at its root culture, yoga is not considered a physical practice. There's hardly any reference to physicality in the yogic tradition. And I'm making this point with at most responsibility. It's not an offhand statement by me. If you take 10 random scriptures and collect uh, examples of how many times physicality has been mentioned, you'll hardly find not even, not even 5% of times. I'm not saying just one scripture. So this is something that we all modern yogic spiritual seekers need to understand. It's like... Uh, Let's say, to give an analogy or example, it's like you use a knife. Let's take an example of a knife. You use knife in India to chop vegetables. But imagine if that knife was used in America as, a, as something to tie your hair. <laughs> it's the same knife, but it's used for a completely different reason. This is what has happened. You know, sometimes people hold their hair up, you know, tie their hair up and hold it with a pen or something like that, right? So, uh, something like that. It is completely the flavor. I'm purposely using the word the flavor. The flavor of yoga in India is completely different. And we need to recognize this. And this is the main, main point that... I try to share with people that, and I'm not getting into the right and wrong or good and bad of it. That is another level of discussion. But we are talking about the whole quality. The quality differs. The quality is different. And that's why many times when I guide yogic spiritual tours in India, People are amazed to see spirituality, which can be and should be equated to the whole of yoga, because yoga is spiritual science. Okay, so you can't say, oh, she's not doing yoga, she's doing prayers. No, praying is also a part of yoga. Praying is yoga in India. Right? But what happens in the West? Oh, I do yoga in the morning and I do meditation in the evening. That separation has happened. Oh, I do yoga in the morning, I do prayers in the evening. That separation has happened. In, in India, all the spiritual practices can be put under the umbrella term yoga. So when, when somebody out of the culture comes and visits India and sees the uh, sees somebody sit and pray at a roadside temple. And Bobby, I'm sure you have seen this many times. You know, random people sitting in the roadside temple and just praying. They are doing yoga. They are living their spirituality. I have seen people many times get out of their Ubers or their uh, taxis, mm -hmm. uh, just hop off quickly you know, I see them in a coat and, you know, a tie. Maybe they were going for some interview or presentation. Immediately go to the roadside, do their prayers, chant their mantra, hop in the car and dash off. So when people visit India and they see that spirituality is not just uh, something hush-hush, spirituality is not something that is limited only to temples. Spirituality is operational. I mean... You know, when you buy a car, in India, when you buy a car, they do a small ritual before you drive out with, of the showroom with the car. You know, when you go to buy a wedding ring in a jewelry shop, they do a small ritual for the to-be 
husband and wife bride and groom so the point that i'm making is the perception and understanding of yoga in india is very different to what has gone and spread outside of india as yoga there needs to be respect to this grand narrative of yoga and we should be careful not to uh dumb it down mm-hmm. yes we can we can participate in it we can practice in in it in parts but we should not forget that it is a whole mm. this is my main point like you can do asana you just do asana don't do anything from the whole scheme of yoga but just then call it asana you can say i'm doing yoga but i'm doing yoga asana that's why in india we have this in sanskrit we have the term yogasana mm-hmm. so when you're doing asana we say i'm doing yogasana mm-hmm. so unnecessarily one thing should not become another the part should not become the whole wow i love your analogies first of all the the example of the coral just makes it so clear that something that takes then the the terminology also of cultural capital how when when one something is taken out of context and then put into an area of the world where capital is the number one sort of priority in the system Absolutely. it's not surprising that it's been taken apart in that way and then that capital has been monetized and just spread in a way that just in the in the way that it's shared almost devoid of that essence of spirituality which someone who is sincerely seeking can come to india and just sense in a moment because like you said we you can see it everywhere and i think for me when i came for the first few times it was so obvious because i coming from a place where spirituality is not seeped in everything yeah. where god is not remembered in the mundane it's actually so separate so in one way it's kind of understandable that it's happened in that way and yet now there is an awareness of it and it seems like okay now we as yoga practitioners all over the world there is it seems kind of imperative that we continue to make the efforts to bring the essence the fragrance like you said of yoga which is so deep and rich into our personal practice and then we can share it outwardly because it is missing and you're right like the physical has become so prioritized and yet everywhere in the world at this time in the world we sort of need that deeper aspect that we need that fragrance of remembrance and knowing and practicing these systems of knowledge and wisdom as just to be a human not even to be a yogi yeah. you know yeah and uh, as as the cancel culture is rising more and more we need to be respectful we need to be empathetic and compassionate about others too you know we can't just otherwise you know the colonizers did it everywhere in the world just come just pluck something out of the culture and take it back home you know most uh, some amazing uh, antiques in india are in the british museum <laughs> you know and the reason uh, the reason i call yoga an eco- uh, why i gave an example of a coral reef is because a coral reef is an ecosystem there are fishes that are found in the coral reef that are not found anywhere else they just thrive in that coral reef ecosystem and yoga is also an ecosystem just like an ecosystem it is just like an ecosystem is shaped by 
ocean currents, by vegetation, by the pH of water, by, uh, by the amount of sunlight that the corals receive. We have to look at all the factors when we assess a coral reef. Same way, we have to assess all the factors when we assess a yogic ecosystem. We can't just pluck out a coral from a coral reef because it's beautiful and it'll look great in my home and just plant in your home aquarium, it will not thrive. Corals don't work like that, mm -hmm. right? They need mm -hmm. to be at a specific high, a uh, specific depth. The water pH needs to be sometimes uh, proper at the range. That's why there are multiple, uh, multiple variables that shape an ecosystem. And yoga is also such an ecosystem that has been shaped by social trends, by colonization, by dynasties, by uh, patriarchy, by so many different things. We need mm -hmm. to look at it in a much, much, much deeper way. Mm -hmm. And then, so if we are starting to examine that ecosystem and starting to look back towards the source of the whole ecosystem and all the nuances of how yoga has developed. And we think back to scriptures like the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, all these very ancient scriptures that are also a part of many Indian religions and traditions. And, and yet yoga as it's shared in the world is non-secular it's for all as if and there is this sense that we have this what is the word like entitlement that yoga should work for me and then in that way yoga gets kind of shaped to the studio to the teacher like you said plucking out something that's beautiful putting it on my altar making it work for me so how can we practice yoga, respect yoga, and actually not let make yoga work for me, but how can I allow that system to give the gifts which it's there for? Whilst it's like a reciprocal relationship that yoga, I'm not just here to take okay. from yoga. What? How can we sort of move in that relational way? That's a very, very beautiful question. Uh, what comes to my mind is attitude change, change of mindset. And the first, if I have to give the first point that needs to shift in our mindset towards yoga is we need to stop looking at yoga as a product. We need to start looking at yoga as a knowledge system. Just in your mind, just assess those two words and they feel completely different. You know, I can, uh, you know, like uh, value addition, as they say in, in process engineering, they call it value addition. I buy wood like Ikea. You go to Ikea, you buy, uh, you know, dim parts and then you go home and you create the whole. That's a product. You add a little process of your own, which is also told to you how to fix <laughs> the, the table that you buy in Ikea. But yoga is not like that. You have to understand it in its complete sense. And then gradually, gradually practice the parts to reach the goal, the whole. That's why the first layer of uh, responsibility that we have is to improve our mindset and therefore improve our uh, perception, understanding of yoga. What am I doing here? Am I just going to my studio to move limbs, to move my body up and down, which I can do, which I can do in the gym also, in Zumba studio also. So what is different here? You know, we need to start asking questions rather than just looking at it as a product. And this is what has happened 
in the last 60 odd years that yoga has become a product. And when you buy a product, you don't have to inquire or minimal inquiry. If I want a toothbrush, I just go, I just pick one off the shelf and start using it. There's no inquiry needed. But with a cultural capital or a knowledge system, I can't do that. So, I mean, I can give a list of ideas, but this should be the primary. Okay, I'm practicing yoga. Hmm. It's just like getting to know a person. Like, like when you started the camera, I asked you, Bobby, how are you? Where are you? And you said, I'm here. And I said, I'm here. Getting to know. Once you go understanding what yoga is, then naturally the respect will come in. The admiration will come in. The reverence will come in. And then you will become responsive. But if it is, you know, uh, shown to you or projected as a product, then nobody cares. We are living in a consumeristic system. I don't care. I go, I get a burger and I eat it and my hunger is satisfied. That's it. I don't care. You see, this we have to understand this too. It's mm -hmm. not a, a product. And that's, uh, you know, segueing from what we spoke last time, if I'm not mistaken, we spoke that yoga is a process and not a product. So I'm coming back to the same point. The moment we start looking at yoga that, yeah, I'm practicing yoga, but there's an entire knowledge system behind it. Then all those things that we demand, you know, in, uh, in the whole topic of cultural appropriation, need to respect this, the yoga, you need to treat it with sincerity. All this will come when the practitioners are exposed to what yoga is in its holistic sense. If some studio tells people yoga is physical exercise, the people will just believe that yoga is physical exercise. So it is the responsibility of stakeholders like you and I, yoga teachers, yoga studio owners, to, to explain to their consumers, to their customers, what yoga is, and we teach this. You know, it's like if I, let's say I'm a yoga studio teaching only asana, no problem. No issue at all. But tell your customers that yoga is this, 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 and this, and this. But in my studio, I teach this. It's like you, getting into yoga is walking into a huge departmental store. You can't just walk into the toothpaste aisle and think that the entire mall is selling toothpaste. <laughs> yeah, because you, of what you've done your entire life, you've just gone there to buy a toothpaste and you've come out with a toothpaste. So for you, the entire mall is only a toothpaste mall, a toothpaste you know, shopping center. It's not. <laughs> Yeah. That's the idea. Yeah. And similarly, if you start to examine that and see that there is more than toothpaste, we also can't grab everything at once and absorb Absolutely. everything at once for something that is so expanded. It requires consistency and earnestness to take steps towards exploring all the many facets. And it's so interesting when you were speaking, I was thinking about how we want to have such an extractive way in which the mind works. And even by starting to inquire into yoga, yoga, that's it kind of, we start to inquire and start to begin to use that faculty of self-inquiry, which is such a key element of our practice as seekers and sadhaks and it's so interesting that if we just approach yoga with that sense of curiosity and inquiry into what is this really 
we start to it starts to work back on us because isn't that ultimate what ultimately what we're doing is examining the nature of my mind which wants everything in a box so I can tick it I don't have to think about where my toothpaste is my mind knows it's here and it's safe and I tick it and yet that's kind of the dismantling that starts to happen once we start to explore and inquire into our true nature so it's kind of this like it happens but we have to first take one step like I love my teacher he would say and maybe it's from a scripture you take one step towards guru guru takes a thousand steps towards you and it's like if we step towards yoga with that then yoga meets us there and we can actually start to get into that deeper truth of who we are absolutely absolutely right we need to realize that it is a process and the process uh, will change you and as you change you will discover new things in yoga you know like again going back to the shopping mall example that you you have only used toothpaste right now and you are not ready for gardening but there is a gardening <laughs> section there but after 10 years when you hopefully have better teeth <laughs> after using so much toothpaste you will you know you never know life will bring you to a hobby of gardening and then you will go and ask one of the helpers there that do you have gardening products and he'll say yeah alley number 5 and then you go to alley number 5 and you'll be like ah this has gardening products. So the gardening products were always there in the mall. It's just that they were out of your field of perception. And this is exactly what you said, you know. We like it or not, yoga is in a certain way a refining process, a hierarchical process. You refine your mind and as you refine your mind, the variables around you will change. Your relationships will change. The way you see yourself will change. The way you uh, find what you find meaningful, purposeful will change. We need to be ready for this change. You know, and it's really a path of self-transformation. If you're not ready to see yourself change or let go of who you were, then this is not a path for you. Mm -hmm. It's really like that. You'll have to let go of who you were. You can't have that me and this me and future me, all the me's. You know, mm -hmm. so that's why I like to call yoga as a self-refining process. You know, gradual, gradual, you're refining, refining, refining. Mm -hmm. This needs to be communicated because people come to yoga for quick fix. They will get quick fix. I'm not saying quick fix is not there in yoga. You know, one class can make you feel relaxed. One proper asana class make make you feel make uh, can make your lower back a little more easy. It's not that quick fixes are not available in yoga, but it's not inherently a path of quick fix. It is a path of longer self transformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also how kind of limiting it is and um, contracting it is to the vastness mm -hmm. of yoga to say that, yo, you know, how I don't know how many times you've heard it. I've heard it many times. I can't practice yoga because people yeah. associate yoga with physical and yet many true spiritual beings practice yoga till the last breath because yes. what is yoga? It's not it's actually recognizing that this limited mind-body mechanism is not who I truly am. <laughs> and you don't have to touch your toes to get to that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> there are scriptures which talk about people who are uh, in samadhi or trying to be in dhyana, even in the bodiless state. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like, non-embodied state, people are still working on themselves. So, we should not reduce the whole of yoga to physicality. 
Mm-hmm. But then I think it's interesting and I'm curious to know what you think about how and when. And I guess a part of it is the the person, the 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 being inside that's ready. But to start to use our discernment, our critical thinking, and how to kind of decipher through that which is insincere or that which is perpetuating the crystallization of the ego versus those practices or offerings or teachings that are actually going to help us on our path of self-realization, if we will. Uh, I feel critical thinking needs to be taught. Critical thinking is a life skill and it needs to be taught properly. There is a way of thinking critically in both Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy. And it needs to be taught because I may think uh, I'm critical minded, but uh, both choices may be dictated by the ego. So then what's the use of me being critical thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, it's like, you know, should I do this bad deed or should I do that bad deed? (laughs) Both the deeds are bad, you know? So, it could be, should I do this bad deed or that less bad deed? Uh, Yeah, then there is some refinement. So, critical thinking is the most important uh, learning that a yogi should have. That's why in, in ancient times, when you studied philosophy, both, again, I'm saying, in the West and in the East, the first subject that you learned was logic. Critical analysis. In India too, we have to study logic before you study scriptures. So, uh, why? Because then you can rationally just, you know, dissect an argument, a thought, a belief, and allow it not to uh, play on your mind. You know, our ridiculous ideas, our what-ifs, our um, delusions of grandeur, right? All these need to be critically uh, reflected upon and dissected. And the lesser these ideas, uh, the more the scope and space for the true self to shine. Mm -hmm. So that again goes into the pedagogical aspect of yoga. You know, when we say, I am studying yoga. What what is it are you studying? No, is knowing hundred anatomical names in Latin going to make me a better and calmer person? We need to ask that. You know, like we do two hundred hour trainings, but we end up knowing muscle names, which is great, but. We are studying muscle names because we have reduced the entirety of yoga to physicality. That's why we are studying uh, muscle names in Greek and Latin, mostly in Latin. So I think the entire curriculum of yoga as we know it in the present times needs a a revamp. Mm -hmm. That's why if you really see, and I talk to many, many yoga teachers all the time, nobody's really sure what are they actually supposed to do as yoga teachers. <laughs> uh, like if you if you if you're teaching a little bit of physical fitness type, you're stepping on the toes of physical trainers. If you're teaching the wellness type, you're stepping on the toes of Ayurvedic uh, practitioners. If you're teaching a little psychology <laughs> philosophy, you're stepping on the toes of psychotherapist professionals who are out there. So yoga teachers are so lost. And I'm making a very blanket statement and I'm admitting it's a generic statement, but still, what am I supposed to do? Okay, I'm a 200-hour certified yoga teacher. Am I a fitness trainer? Am I a counselor? Am I a philosophy teacher? Uh, Am I supposed to manage people's lifestyle? Uh, Am I supposed to make them meditate? Uh, Am I supposed to (laughs) chant Sanskrit mantras? Nobody's sure. 
I have never seen any educational degree which you get a certificate of uh, having passed the degree and you're not sure what the H you're supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm That's... just relaying to you the confusions that so many yoga teachers talk to me about. Oh, I did my 200 hour. I still have no idea what am I supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. So am I a fitness trainer now? Because all that I'm teaching is one, two, three, four, five, other way, other leg, one, two. <laughs> I mean, I, I paid $3,000 and I got 200-hour certificate just to count from 10 to 1 and 1 to 10. So we need to examine all these things very, very honestly. Mm -hmm. And interesting what you say about the pedagogy of this, even this concept of 200 hours and I'm a certified yoga teacher and like, what is that even? It feels so incomplete in a sense. In a way, I'm okay with 200 hour, 300 hour, 500 hour because it has to start somewhere. Yeah. But I'm just saying that what I have seen is people come out of the 200-hour training with more confusion than they got into it. Mm -hmm. Like, now I know all these things, now what? <laughs> well, would you say then now what is comes into the importance of that critical thinking? Like, it's like, you know, we do some kind of a training, we do some kind of an exploration, and then we have to apply it. And then I think, do you think that we, and like you said, critical thinking needs to be taught. So in that sense, we need a teacher. So who's going to teach yeah. us how to apply the critical thinking? Yeah, that's why I really said that's, that the whole uh, teacher training model needs to be revamped or re-looked at. It's because what happens is, again, we are... Nowadays, in the popular yogic schema, people become teachers before they become students. This is a, this is a huge paradox that I see. Everybody is excited to become a teacher without having a strong grounding in a long-standing studentship. Sometimes I give an analogy that yoga teachers are like lifeguards. Yeah, because yoga is like swimming. You save life when you know how to yoga. So if you are uh, learning to become a yoga teacher and we correlate it to learning to become a lifeguard, you will have to first jump into the pool yourself. You'll have to know how to save yourself. You'll have to know how to swim in the deep end of the pool without <clears throat> panicking. And only then, after a sizable amount of experience, you will be able to save lives and stand there at the edge of the pool as a lifeguard. Same with yoga teachers. You know, many of, many of us jump or call ourselves a lifeguard because even when we don't know how to save ourselves. Forget save others. Because saving others is a very good high for the ego. You know, 200 hours yoga teacher training is an amazing self-esteem boost for the ego. That's a completely different topic altogether. <laughs> but yes, the the pedagogy of the 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 curriculum needs to be re-looked at, is what I feel. Mm -hmm. I would not cram so many different subjects in 200 hours. It's too much. There's too much load on the 200 hour students. They just have they have to know too many things in three different languages. Anatomy in Latin, uh, philosophy in Sanskrit, and medium of instruction English, and you are Polish. <laughs> you know, my mother tongue is Marathi, teaching yoga, studying yoga in English, 
anatomy in latin and sanskrit uh, mantras in sanskrit so four languages in 21 day course it's too much mm-hmm. too much for mm-hmm. what to become to become to be qualified professional without much confidence mm-hmm. yeah and then i'm kind of curious not even about yoga teachers per se but i think we all suffer with our minds and certain people to a certain level for whatever reason beyond the logic of the mind desires freedom we have that mamukshatwa something inside and whether one decides to take a yoga teacher training or go to an ashram or do a vipassana there's something inside that wants freedom and that once that starts to become alivened in someone it can be a lonely path i've had many students say no one understands me anymore i i'm getting delusioned or disillusioned with the world and so it can be lonely and i think there in that loneliness there can be some vulnerability and i'm wondering if you can just touch on or shed some light on how that curious seeker that jigasu how one can use the discernment and the critical thinking to arrive at yoga yeah what you spoke is absolutely absolutely on point but again not much talked about you know yoga is supposed yoga is marketed as a path of creating happiness but the path it is path of creating happiness after a point you know but the path goes through a lot of not so happy uh, explorations you know it's like those uh, uh wild west movies you know there's a pot of gold like you know a movie like mekana's gold or somewhere you know there's an adventure and there's a lot of fights and, and then finally they discover this hill of a mountain of gold kind of a thing um this is why we need to number one recognize that it is a process it is going to take a long time we have to be patient number one i would say we have to recognize the volume of ground that we have to cover when we recognize the the space that we have to cover we will not be impatient with us like for example you spoke about working the mind right we are trying to rework or rewire the mind that that has so many conditionings traumas memories insights and fallacies about us the project is huge humongous project but again that is not told we are told that you know oh yoga you know so the example i usually give is <clears throat> you see if it's a long haul flight you know let's say you're flying from somewhere to somewhere for 15 hours once you find your seat huh you you know there are many people who go to the washroom they will wear their pajamas some people also carry their pillows and they you know tuck themselves in why because it's 15 hours you are stuck in a hollow aluminium tube for 15 hours at 90000 feet you have nothing else to do so you just go ah patience but we are not told it's a 15 hour flight so we don't know when we are going to land so we have we don't take off our shoes we are just like are we there yet are we there yet when are we landing excuse me you see so the 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 gravity of the project of self transformation in yoga is not told to us which the scriptures scriptures tell us you know like the the scriptures will tell you this is going to take lifetimes so be prepared in bhagavad gita itself arjuna asked krishna oh if i don't become 
successful in my project of yoga what will happen so then krishna tells him you know next lifetime you will you know carry forward and things like that but nowadays we are not told that's why we are impatient and the more we are impatient the more we start doubting ourselves am i doing something wrong right like mm-hmm. if somebody says you will uh, like if somebody says uh, put the cake in oven for for 15 minutes and when they actually you you'll have to bake the cake for 30 minutes after 15 minutes you're like no the cake is not done yet am i have i done something wrong so then the doubt increases when the doubt increases the faith reduces so you see the cycle the impatience in yoga creates self doubt the self doubt increases uh, decreases faith in yoga decreasing faith in yoga will make you l- do your practice lesser and lesser and lesser so the this a vicious cycle that's number 1 number 2 finding your teacher is extremely important is what i feel maybe some people might think that i'm very old fashioned but i truly believe in having your teacher i'm saying this your teacher and not just a teacher because you'll need to see through many teachers to find a teacher that you can work with over a period of time just uh, buying yoga books off amazon and reading them will not change you need to be under someone's guidance uh study though even if you have a teacher majority work is yours but what happens is like you said you know you find that the path is a solitary path you know when you confront your deeper realities you don't you don't like it you don't like yourself you know or who who do you go to when you confront these things you go to somebody who's been there done that and that is your teacher you don't go to a random if if i am a if i have broken my uh, foot and i am in plaster i don't go to another person in plaster to know what is going to happen we are we both are our legs are in plaster we are just going to be empathetic towards each other but none of us are going to tell us what next that's why it's important to find a teacher because a teacher gives support a teacher gives system which books don't sangha is also important spiritual community is the third point is important but again a spiritual community should not be just a, a a space to share each other's traumas and go home feeling better because everybody else is suffering like me it should there should be some deeper uh, resonance to that meeting of fellow seekers that's why it is called sat sang sang means company sat means in the company of a higher reality a reality that is not disturbed by the push and pull of life sat sat means existence so all these three things to just summarize patience finding your teacher and a community a community that is led by a higher goal led by purpose led by uh, empathy togetherness will help mm-hmm. yeah those are all really potent points to remember because at a certain point on this path in in sadhana eventually something's going to start to rub and something something someone a situation the mind whatever it gets uncomfortable and that's the point where it's so easy to turn the back on the practice yeah. and not stay consistent and those three points are such anchors to help one remain steadfast because on the other side of that friction on the other side of that getting the mind exposed getting the ego exposed it's a horrible feeling because the mind and the ego wants to grip on to itself yeah. and when we can arrive at the other side like i love the analogy of the plasters 
once we take the wisdom of the one that's walked again, then we also walk again. But we have to know that there's something on the other side. And quite often, the mind is an echo chamber of it won't allow us to get there just like you said about reading the scriptures it's so true like if i'm reading the scriptures from the point of wanting to validate my mind all that all the clues are in there that will help me absolutely Mm -hmm. well i love to well i've loved this conversation and really it feels like a beautiful satsang just a coming together of bringing our attention, our awareness to that deeper, higher, more expansive purpose. And this season on this podcast, I've really been exploring vichar and self-inquiry. And I love to ask the guests if you could leave us with not a statement of wisdom, but a question for us to take into our own practice, into our own contemplation, to find the answer within ourselves, what would you leave us with? Why do I do what I do? That's it. Simple question. It's a I'm fundamental like, question. Yeah. That's it. Why do I do what I do? You know, it'll help you you know, filter out the nonsense, the BS that we unnecessarily uh, involve ourselves in. And get exhausted by. Mm -hmm. If we critically examine the things that we do in the day, most of it are not required. And I'm not speaking it from any position of privilege or entitlement. At any level, a human is, we need to inquire. Mm -hmm. You know, you may be a rich person or a poor person. This is a very, very good statement to cultivate vairagya in life. Why? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be only about materiality. Like, why, why am I worried about the future so much? You know, why? Just ask why. And this is the basis of critical thinking. Asking why, not just taking anything on the face value. Asking why. Why? With, with a good heart, okay? When you go to the teacher, ask why. Inquire. Find out. Be curious. Check if there are other ways of uh, perceiving what you're perceiving. And then you realize that the world is much, 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 much bigger than what my mind has zoned in. That is when you are set free, at least at the initial level. I love it. I love it. And I know everybody's listening, but I have to say your shirt is so perfect. His shirt says, wherever you go, go with your heart. And I think Uh it's, you know, when we ask those questions, when we come with patients, when we come to our teacher, to our community, when we always bring that sincerity from the heart, I think from there, and like that goes back to what we were talking about last time about the path of bhakti, like everything can unfold as it should from there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. Well, thank you so, so much. And just another, another quick question. You know, we talked about teacher trainings and things, and I've asked you, I think multiple times now, if you ever do, do you ever do teacher trainings or right now you're focusing on your cultural trips? No, I I do. uh, But I'm personally reviewing my own 200 hour trainings. The last I did was 2019. After that, the pandemic happened. And so I'm still trying to rework my uh, course content. I don't want to just go by what is supposed to be taught. I want to teach what I want to teach, Mm, which I think is uh, more uh, applicable to people. Mm -hmm. So I want to create teachers, but not without making them students first. That's my whole objective right now. You know, because teaching should be a natural output of your experienced studentship. You know, only then it will happen out of joy, not of not out of wanting to prove a point that uh, when I stand and say, 
lie down. Ten people lie down in front of me. You know, it's an ego <laughs> high. You know, like, I say, raise your arms. And everybody raise your, raises their arms. So, wow, I feel good. You know, yeah. so we have to manage that too. So Definitely. That sense, some sometime it will happen in the future. But for now, I'll do small, small uh, workshops, trainings and things like that instead of just doing a whole package per se. Nice. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to see you. And I hope one day to cross paths in person. Who knows? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And okay. I'm taking the, your mantra from your shirt with me today. Wherever I go, sure. I'm going with my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That's a mantra for life. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps the show reach more people. If you'd like to have your greatest spiritual questions answered on the show, send them to me through social or email. And don't forget to follow on your favorite streaming platforms. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the path together. Music graciously offered by Heidi Herdia Groschler. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.